Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Metsian folk. This is a Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. And you are here with uh, Sam Maxwell. And we're just going to get right into it. Uh, Michael Colon, I believe we have you first, at least. Uh, I'm here, I'm alive, and I'm well. What's going on, friend? Well, you know, uh, not much has really changed, and I think that's really what the podcast is going to be about, more of the same. And uh, I'm hoping we got Rich now. Rich, we got uh, Rich Sparago? Uh, oh, well, unfortunately right now we do not have Rich Sparago, but I'm sure he's going to call back uh, sooner than later. Uh, but, but Mike, I'm not sure if you saw what uh, what Jeff Wilpon had to say uh, yesterday, but it just seems you know, to me, that he still, as usual, doesn't get it. Uh, I'd have to agree with you. No, I don't think uh, he nor his father in this ownership gets it at all. You know, I I mean, uh, uh, Salt Cats, you know, (laughs) he's an innocent bystander. He really is. He doesn't make any decisions. Uh, one way or another. So this really is between Fred and Son. Uh, and being that Jeff is the COO, uh, most of this is going to fall on him. But Fred has his faults. Fred has many faults. Uh, and to some extent, you know, he still has influence within the organization. And together, uh, it is what it is. Yeah, and... You know, they have yet to prove to me that they can sustain success. And, and basically, yet and yet again, we are on the cusp of a major break season. And, and Rich Sparago, I'm sure you saw what Jeff Wilpon had to say because it, it's written profusely about even though nothing much has changed, it's almost a waste of words, isn't it, as we are doing right now? Well, you know, I, I have some different thoughts on that, Sam, and, and um, I agree, by the way, that it's tough to sustain success. I, I don't disagree with any of that, but as a technical matter, what Wilpon said and what Sandy says is true. I mean, there's no denying that, that it doesn't matter what your payroll is. It doesn't have to matter. Maybe it's a better way to put it. And, you know, I saw somebody put something on Twitter the other day, and I think this is probably common knowledge, the Astros payroll, the world champion Houston Astros, their payroll was very much middle of the pack. Last year, I believe it was 124. The Mets were officially 145 on opening day. So do you have to spend a lot to win? You do not. Definitively, you do not. But I really like something I just read from Cerrone. I was, I was on Mets Vlog a little while ago. And and he wrote that while you don't have to spend to win, it certainly increases your odds. And I think that's the better way to put it. Like, in other words, to say, oh, my God, you know, they're not spending a lot. They can't win. They, eh, that's not technically true. It might be emotionally true. But on the other hand, you know, like Cerrone said, it certainly increases your odds. And I, I think that's the fair way to put it. But as a fan, yeah, of course. I mean, it, 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 it's frustrating. You know, I, I have a 20-game ticket plan that I've had for years. I give them my money every year without question. And it, it's infuriating that it, it, they seemingly don't reinvest it in the organization. And obviously we'll see. Sorry, I was having some uh, technical issues there <laughs> as, as this uh, keeps unfolding. But uh, just like, I guess, the Wolfons, I was having technical issues. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, they're, they're right that 
um, nothing's really happened. I think Sandy said something about him being uh, third in the pack of who's been spending. And so, sure, let's wait and see. But most people are assuming, Mike, that uh, when it comes down to the offseason by the end of it, we're not going to be talking about the Mets being top one, two, or three. No, we're not. Uh, and you know what? Just to pick up where Rich left off, what he says necessarily isn't wrong. Yes, you can win with a low payroll. Yes, you can lose with a high payroll. The Mets are experienced at that. In 2002, Steve, Le- Steve Phillips left this team with the highest payroll in the National League, and we were last place club. So, no, winning doesn't buy championships. But we're we're in the same old battle of semantics with this ownership. You know, uh, what did they really say? What did they really what what was so insightful about what he told us today or yesterday or whenever it was? Nothing. Nothing. And, and nothing he said we didn't already know. You know, for God's sakes, speak truth to us. We're not stupid. We know you still have money problems. You know, so don't come to me with this nonsense that, you know, what the rest of... I don't care what the rest of baseball is doing. I want to know what you're doing. They have money to buy the Syracuse club. They have money to to involve themselves with the renovation out in Nassau Coliseum of that arena. They have money to want to invest themselves into a project right across the street. You know, they have all kinds of money for their extracurricular enterprises. But what I said last week still applies to this ownership. Repeatedly, Fred Wilpon says, my goal is to break even. So what does that tell you? That they're not going to go the extra mile for us. And in 2015, they refinanced $700 million worth of debt stemming from Madoff. And that puts us in year three. That's the truth, and that's what they'll never tell us. And that's why I get annoyed with them. It's not necessarily the transactional lack of transactions. That's up to Sandy Alderson. But the lack of transparency, the lack of honesty, the lack of forthrightness. It's ponderous, the word I love to use. And that's why people get frustrated. And here we are, we're only in January. But how many Januarys have we spent having the same conversation? Madoff or no Madoff? Prior to Madoff, post Madoff. The narrative hasn't really changed outside of all mom and I extracting money out of their wallets back in 2005 and six. Yeah, that's, that's basically sums it up. I mean, I, Rich, I'm going to let you follow that up. I'm, I'm looking for a specific quote regarding David Wright, and I'm going to keep doing that because that's the direction it was going to go. But, Rich, you can take it away from there. Well, yeah, while well, you look for the quote, I mean, that – now now here's the other side of my message is, you know, that I tried to give the balanced, you know, perspective, but now I'm going to do the more emotional side, which is it is frustrating to hear the same thing year after year. And, and Mike, here's the thing that frustrated me. You were talking about, you know, we're not stupid, be honest with us. What about when, when he said, we have a plan? Well, say something about that plan. What is that plan? It, it, you don't have to name names of players. What about things like, the plan is, A, 
we're going to go for it this year while we still have the young pitching under control. We're going to shore up here and there. You know, I'm entrusting Sandy with the specific moves, but we are all in this year. Or is the plan, you know what, 2015 was our opportunity. That has come and gone. Um, we're going to look to get younger. You know, say that because owners do say that when that's the case. But this guy said nothing. He said, we have a plan. Well, you know what? I have a plan, too, you know, to, to get up off my couch at one point. What, what does this plan actually mean? And they didn't share that with us, and that's frustrating. And, Sam, I know you're looking for the exact quote, but let me tell you the David Wright part that, that irked me was um, he was saying that, you know, well, you know, we got 75% of David's, um, David's salary covered through insurance, but the insurance policy costs us a lot of money, and we have to be covered for exposure should he decide to play, and we don't have any insurance, and the insurance dries up, then we have, you know, we have to make moves planning or you know, be careful about the moves we make because we do have upside exposure on David Wright. If he does decide to play, then we have to pay him. So that, that do, you know, answer, do you know what it sounds like to me? Do you know what it sounds what's like to that? me? Sell the team. I don't, wanna, like, I don't want to hear this. Like, this is where we're getting into douchebaggery. And like that that's for like why 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 are you bringing this kind of thing up uh right now? You know, like why are you like it's just it's it's tax, <clears throat> it's a lack of it. And which I've had plenty of at certain points, not to be a hypocrite, but when you're talking about the level that he is at being the owner of the team. At, at this point, I mean, you know, we're talking about like 10 years ago is when City Field opened and they had all this, this PR issues. Almost 10 years ago. I mean, we're like this, this is what, the ninth season coming up? It's been eight years. Uh, uh, no, it's ninth season. This is the tenth season, right? Yep. This is the tenth season. So nine years, ten seasons. And you still don't know how to handle this? This is where you just say, well, besides the – entire uh, uh, overall issue with what you just said. Uh, it, 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 you, you don't understand PR, obviously, and this has been over and over and over again. One of the things that we are criticizing them is their, the image. And, and like, there's such a rich, unbelievable, good, lovable, and sometimes losery image to go with, but they seem to not accepting and considering they seem to be, they're not lovable losers. They're just losers. And because of that, we just have this just bland thing going. And, 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 and not to criticize some of the players out there, because this can be a fun team for sure. But just like I, I sent a tweet out about the Knicks and the fact that Jamal Crawford is still playing and looking back on those teams that Jamal Crawford was on with the New York Knicks and, and talking about, like, there were some talented players around, uh, including Jamal Crawford, and and yet they were some of the worst teams in, in Knicks history and, and some of the worst teams in basketball history, and that's because of the dysfunction around them, which it, it's just it keeps being a toss-up between the two. It's just every time I think it's just like one's a douchebag and one's an asshole tyrant. It's just like I don't know what – like. What are you? What are you supposed to do? Then this is where capitalism and 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 just like the the story that continues to play out with sports teams over the history, uh, it it just it keeps it it's kind of, it, it's at some point 
you know, having done so much research myself on, on the past before I was born about all ownership stuff, it's just like at some point you're like, fucking A. Anybody, who, whoever wants to take that. Guys, work much yourselves. It's corporate douchebaggery, if I could borrow your word. It's disconnected corporate douchebaggery. Uh, yeah, you said it, Sam. They really are out of touch with the layman. They really are. And I can't help myself. I always have to resort back to the divorce between Wilpon and Doubleday. You know, again, Fred and Saltcats, they made the bid to, to uh, Payson's estate. And it amounted to 2%. Both of them came up with 600000 and change each. And the bid went to them instead of Ed Cranepool or anybody else for that matter. But they still needed somebody to fund the rest of it, knowing that they weren't going to be a managing owner, knowing that Fred Wilpon would assume that role. And lo and behold, Nelson Doubleday showed up and, and, and footed that bill. But he, didn't, he wasn't aware of all the details. Maybe they just slipped. You know, maybe they just slipped him. It went over his head. He didn't care. He wasn't paying attention. Whatever the reasons may be, he wasn't aware of it. And we found that out in 92. Because when the baseball owners wanted to oust Faye Vincent, Doubleday threatened to sell his half of the team, okay, in protest. And it was found out that he wasn't allowed to put his his 50 or his percentage of the team out on the open market, that Fred Wilpon had the right of first refusal. So that's where that all came up. And that's where, you know, some of that information became uh, became known to us. Uh, you know, and then when Bartlesman purchased Doubleday Publishing, that's when they became 50-50 partners. But still, Fred Wolpon was always the managing owner of this organization. Now, in order to come up with Nelson Doubleday's 50% upon him wanting out, that's when we first heard about Madoff. Madoff allowed it or made it possible for Fred Wolpon to give him half of that money up front and then three installations over the next three years. And they fought. They fought famously over whether to renovate Shea Stadium or build City Field. Obviously, Doubleday wanted to renovate Shea. Fred Wilpon wanted to build City Field. But Nelson Doubleday knew they couldn't afford it. You know, so a lot of fighting happened over that issue, amongst many issues that they fought over. And finally, Nelson Doubleday said, I've had it. And Madoff was already part of the process. The New York Times quotes Nelson Doubleday as saying, I was aware of his presence. I was aware of his uh, relationship with the Wilpons. And that's not a good nor a, a, a bad thing. It's just a matter of fact. He was aware of their relationship. So how did Wilpon uh, balance his books all those years? Well, we learned from Madoff. That's how he balanced his books all these years, ever since he took over sole ownership in 2003. And it blew up in his face. And here we are. That's the truth of the matter, is that they never, ever, ever mention. Everyone knows it, but they fail to mention it. You know, this is acceptable if we're in Kansas City. And I'm not looking for them to spend wanton leave, as he chose to use that word. 
being just. We're not looking for that. But as Rich said, you know, you say there's a plan, but you fail to elaborate what that plan might be. It's not a, it's not a matter of national security. What is your plan? Because the fact of the matter is there is no plan. You're just patching this together year by year. That's the truth of the matter. It still boils down to money, and they still want us to show up before they spend that money. Because, again, Fred Wilpon says he will break even. He will not go above and beyond. He promised the banks, in order to get City Field Finance, he promised them attendance of $3.5 million a year. Ludicrous. Everybody in their brother knew they weren't going to match those numbers. He based them on those last couple of years at City uh, at Shea Stadium. And no other time did they ever draw eighty five uh three point five million except for eighty six. And, and then decided somebody. to make a stadium and they decided to make a stadium that was forty forty two thousand mm-hmm. in the biggest stadium. In the exactly. World. You make a small place and then you promise the banks we're gonna have three point five million a year in order to get that financing. Well, here we are. No, Madoff is gone, heavily in debt, and that's the reality they don't want to talk about. And that's why I, 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 I'm insulted. I'm insulted by this. We all know better. And that's what irks me. I'm, I'm just like, just take your – there's just so many people who would be ready to get a group together thing. And, I mean, when you look at Green Bay, and, Rich, I'll pass it to you after this, I mean, that's a pretty great idea that keeps working almost year after year. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Packers are – they're publicly owned, right? I mean, so they yeah. actually, fans actually have a stake in the team. I think it's a fairly small stake, but but they do sell a percentage of the team, you know, to the public. And and you're right, though. You know, think about someone like Mark Cuban, who you know, at various times we've heard he's interested in buying the Mets. He's not interested in buying the Mets. Um, but there are, if the Wilpons put the team for sale, the team would sell in no time. I mean, there would be bidders everywhere. Look, people people bought the Marlins, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, they're certainly going to buy the Mets in a baseball-crazed city like New York. Um, but they won't do it. You know, this is the thing that they like holding on to for the, for the reasons that, you know, that we know. And unfortunately, you know, it's the fan base that suffers because if they break even – they're happy, right? So when they break even, unless they very deftly spend that money and, and bring the absolute right players in like a 2015, then break even probably means, what, 80, 78 to 85 wins and probably not the postseason. So while the Wilpons may have achieved what they wanted, the fan base isn't happy. And something has to break this cycle. I mean, you have owners who set their expectations in one place, and that place generally is not going to be the most successful. And, and the fans are irate. And this has been going on for years. I mean, you know, like Mike said, if we had this podcast in 2000, I don't know what, you know, 2010, 11, we would have had the same conversation about how, you know, they're, they're setting their expectations low, 
rebuilding whatever, you know, not the, the conversation would not have been they're all in on this thing, they're bringing the right players, they are willing to open the purse strings and have demonstrated a willingness to do that when the right player is out there. This is the same conversation we have year after year after year after year. And like Mike said, you know, it is frustrating because of the repetition. This isn't a cycle, you know, where, okay, we won, you tear it down, you rebuild it like the Phillies are doing or just for arbitrary example. This is something that this is, this is in their DNA. This is not a cyclical thing. And I think that's what really gets everybody's ire. And before I bring up my next point, in terms of the Phillies, I mean, they could easily be a sleeper team, and Jake Kapler could be, like, like you see it happening basically through the uh, uh, through the NL East with, I think, what, what's his name, Dave Martinez, or, or uh, uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for the Nationals? Uh, Martinez, yes. So was it Dave Martinez? Yeah, he's a manager, yes. Okay, so so like it's basically you have a bunch of finally throughout the NL East after attempting to do it with some veteran uh, uh, blood in there. Uh, you have basically what I think is completely rookie managers all around, including Dave Kapler, uh, Mickey Callaway, and now Dave Martinez. And uh, with that, you know, you you get to press the reset button. I, I I'm I'm completely losing track of exactly where I was going with that, but. But what I know I wanted to loop back around to with uh, with Jeff and 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 uh, and um, Fred was the fact that they may be what they're doing, especially considering they think they have what it takes to perform right now where they are. Unless you know, who knows? The, there's still moves uh, moves to be made, most likely. But you know, they may be waiting for that that price because right now they could probably get what what did the Marlins get? Like two billion dollars? I mean. You could probably even ask for four or five, but maybe they're waiting for six or seven. Anybody want to go with that, Mike? I don't know if they'll get that much. Right now, Forbes um, Forbes uh, lists them within a, a relative range of the Marlins. Two-point change. Uh, but, again, uh, the Mets have debt, so that lowers that number. So right now isn't the optimal time for them to sell their percentage, their remaining percentages of the team. Don't forget, they sold those uh, little cupcakes, for $20 million each a couple of years ago. So there are some owners on board uh, who would probably like to uh, help set that market. But uh, I don't think the Mets will bring in anywhere near 7 or $8 million. Uh maybe $3 million. I mean, the Dodgers got bought for $2 million, uh, and they were a little bit more uh, – they, they were on somewhat more better financial footing at the time. Uh, post Frank McCourt, uh, but still two billion dollars was a lot of money. Uh, and up front, you know, they were happy to do that. But now is when that ownership has to really settle in for the long haul. Magic Johnson understands that, and he'll he'll be changing what they're doing in L.A. very shortly. I'm sure of it. Uh, but no, I don't think that I don't think any team, any major league baseball team right now, is going to touch six, seven. A billion dollars? No, no. Um, maybe the Mets might fetch three. Maybe. And which is why they may be holding out for four or five in a few uh-huh. years. I mean, Perhaps. we should get into like 2000, 2000, 2020, 2022. Who knows exactly what's Perhaps. going on here? Uh, the, the longer they remain in debt, though, uh, the longer this process will will play itself out. 
because it's not beyond them to turn around and refi their refi upon their refi after their refi on top of their refi. Know what I mean? So uh, it's it's tricky. It's tricky, and I, I don't want to beat a dead horse to death. <laughs> Is that the right thing? No, probably not. But again, they refied $700 million in 2015 over five years. We are now in 2018. What does that say? Huh. Rich? Well, it's a very sobering thought, you know, because um, if you're a neutral to optimist and you're thinking, you know, someday they're going to change their ways and, you know, not be shopping in the bargain bin and all that kind of stuff. And then you hear that what Mike just said about the massive debt and the refinancing, and it really, really levels you. I mean, it brings you down because, again, this is – it goes back to my previous point. This doesn't seem to be cyclical. You know, this wasn't a build-up, tear-down, rebuild. This is something that doesn't seem to be going away. This seems to be a problem that, you know, I don't see a solution for. If they just keep refinancing their debt, eventually you have to pay the piper, right? And you don't – first of all, when you're refinancing, you're still in debt. You still have many other obligations, and you're just going to have to pay the piper down the line. And, and so when does this end? When does this cycle break? Yeah, I know when it breaks. It breaks when they sell the team. But they've how many times do they have to say that they're not selling? They're not selling. This is uh, Fred wants the team and Jeff is on cloud nine that he, you know, he owns a baseball team. And so the question becomes, what's it going to take to make this better? You know, this is, they're a private corporation. The commissioner can't step in. Nobody can step in and say in the best interest of baseball, you have to sell the team. Nobody can do that. They're, they're making payroll. You know, they're not they're not doing anything, you know, like that, like missing payroll. So nobody has any authority over them to force them to sell. The financial picture doesn't seem to be changing in the near future. WTF, guys, I mean, when is something going to change? Does anybody have an answer for that? No, I'll, I'll, I'll stay in the past, as a matter of fact. Let's go back to Doubleday again and Mike Piazza. Doubleday wanted to pay Piazza. Fred Wilpon didn't. But, you know, look through the years on on the things that Fred Wilpon wanted to spend his money on, which was City Field, purchasing Syracuse, getting involved in Long Island Coliseum, getting involved on a potential project across the street, be, trying to be involved in Belmont. You know, so, uh, again, WTF, right, Rich? Right. WTF. He wants to spend money on all these things except improving his ball club. And the fight between him and Doubleday over Piazza is a perfect example of that. It took all mom and I to extract money out of their wallet. He told uh, and he told uh, 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 Art Howe and the GM at the time, Duquette, shut it down, didn't he not? He told him to shut it down, and that's exactly what they did until Omar came and convinced them, said, yo, you got to spend if you want these people to come. And that's exactly what happened. And- and, you know, Mike Piazza, Rich, is another perfect example of the payoff that can happen when you spend the money on the right thing. You know, and I, you're right, Sam, and, and tangential point here, but, 
You know, when you read some of the writers on Twitter, they, they like to portray, at least in general, the, the general tone seems to be, they like to portray the Met fans as, you know, screaming irrational people, spend, 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 you know, just spend because the Yankees spend and spend more. And, and that's not what we are. As the fan base, like Mike said, we're smarter than that. We're, we, don't, we know you don't have to be the number one spending team. That's not what we're asking you to do. What we're asking you to do is to, A, tell us what your plan is, and, B, have a plan that makes some freaking sense. I mean, and, again, if rebuilding is the plan, okay, go with it. If, if, go, if going all in is the plan, go with that. But, this, I, but we, we're all saying it. It seems like every year it's the idea is to survive, is to get just enough people in the city field by making the team reasonably decent that they hit their attendance number that breaks them even, the payroll stays so it matches the, you know, the incoming revenue, everybody breaks even, and the ownership seems to be content with that. That's an okay state of the world for them, but it's not for us, and that's where we are. We're at that place and, um, where, like Mike was saying, the objective is to break even, and that's not necessarily fair to us as a fan base. And before segueing off of it, I'm going to end with this uh, about it. It's not just the fact that they haven't, uh, that they want to break even and they, they don't really want to reinvest properly in it. It's not just on the field that they're not reinvesting properly. And hopefully we're starting to see some better on the field, off the field type of stuff in terms of the, the uh, uh, sports performance stuff and the injury related issues. Um, but in terms of, uh, where they spend their money, they also don't seem to have as good of people. And, and and I know there's a lot of great people working for the Mets, and I do not want to uh, sound like I, I am hating on, on any of those unbelievable people, but there's something missing in terms of still the, the pulse of the fans and understanding the pulse of the fans. And it's, it's that... It's, it's that... Uh, well, we understand why the fans, the fans are frustrated. We're frustrated too. But but it, there's there's something they they you know there's other things that they couldn't possibly understand. You know it's it's, it's that it's that brush off of, of our concerns that that's an issue too. And you can see that in the way they actually operate the ball club and the way they they actually run a corporation. And it it, it I just don't think they understand. They don't seem to have the sense of who the Mets are, who the fan base is and what to do with this club. And that's the biggest issue I think we have with it. It's not just that they're not reinvesting in the team. It's how void of that heart that they seem to be about the New York Mets. And that's where we really, really are frustrated about it. And and I will segue uh, to some happier news, but we will start with some bittersweet parts of that, and that's uh, the Hall of Fame voting. And uh, while there were some amazing people, including, uh, you know, what's, what's his name, who, uh, you know, who, uh, played us a lot back in the day in the 90s and stuff. But there was also somebody who unfortunately uh, was voted off on his first try, and that's Johan Santana. And uh, with, with that, though, I will say that Johan still says he's trying to make a comeback. And uh, I'll start with you, Rich, with that. I would love it if Johan Santana could reset himself uh, for this Hall of Fame vote with a spectacular call, comeback year or of one or two. It's 
maybe maybe what he needs to do is go to talk to R.A. Dickey and become a knuckleballer, wouldn't you say? A lefty knuckleballer, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, with Johan, a couple of thoughts popped to mind. It didn't end right for Johan. He deserves better. Um, you, you know, the guy pitched with all the balls in the world. You know, he, he we all remember the second to last game of the season in 2008 against the Marlins on three days rest and all that kind of thing. And, and then even the no hitter, you know, throwing 145 pitches and gutting it out. But that, that was Johan in a nutshell. Johan was a very talented guy, but a fierce, fierce competitor. He took his hitting very seriously you know, would do anything the team asked. He had a torn meniscus in the knee. Someone out and pitched a complete game against the Marlins. And for a guy to literally fall off the table like he did, it's so sad. I mean, it is. You know, he, he, it wasn't a proper send-off. And to your point, Sam, while Johan will never make the Hall of Fame, if he does find a way to ever get back to the big leagues and goes out there and has two seasons maybe – where he combined wins 30 and loses, you know, 18 or something like that, posts over those two seasons, maybe a 3-5 ERA, that would be great because, again, the man disappeared from public view because of injuries, and he was such a good ambassador to the game. He, he was, if you have a kid, you want your kid to be like Johan on the field because of the grit, and yeah, and you're right, it it. it, it did not end properly for him, so I would root for him to be successful in a comeback if he could ever do that. You know, I'm not actually validating for Johan Santana to take HGH, but this is where <laughs> I kind of miss HGH. I would like to have seen Johan Santana pitch a little longer, and had HGH done that, which is clearly, I think, not the best, but also definitely not as bad as anabolic steroids. Um, like, this is where I think that, you know, you, you have, we have to consider, we have to have, have a little bit more gray area and stop, you know, going to such different extremes about it uh, every time. But, Mike, I'll, I'll pass it on to you about that. And, and you can go off on uh, wherever, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily mean to digress exactly to an HGH conversation, but I want to see Johan Santana pitch more. And when you look at how great he was, in his stretch for the Minnesota Twins, I mean, at some point he could have a pre- he could have had a pretty solid Hall of Fame uh, conversation here. Uh, yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. He was certainly uh, headed that way, uh, but is he a Hall of Famer? No, uh, unfortunately, he just didn't do enough. Although what he did was just absolutely brilliant. Uh, HGH. <laughs> Look, I'm all for advances in medicine and conditioning and things of that nature. Uh, HDH steroids is really nothing new. It's just that we treat baseball on a completely different standard than any other sport. Uh, I remember them speaking about uh, steroids back as far back as the 76 Olympics, which is the first one I saw with uh Full uh, recall of uh, the East Germans, the Chinese, Russians, uh, a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, if he comes back, you know, uh, I just uh, I, I just hope he doesn't hurt himself any further. Uh, I, I think he would need more than just two stellar years to make a Hall of Fame bid, though. Uh, 
I don't know, tough call. Um, the standards have been watered down, in my view, over the decades. Uh, the Hall of Fame should be for the elite of the elite, should be for one out of every hundred players. And, you know, there's some pitchers in the Hall of Fame now who, without a doubt, Johan Santana is better. Uh, but yet... Uh, well, here, here's the thing, though. Like, I, I and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, and I could, I guess, I could work on that. But, uh, and Rich, I'm not sure if you saw anything about this, but somebody said that that the stretch that Yoan Santana had as a Minnesota Twin isn't that far off from the stretch that got uh, Sandy Koufax as a lefty voted into the Hall of Fame. I saw that. If you look at at their um, if you look at their their peak years, they're very close. Um, Kofax uh, is a little bit better, but yeah. Kofax I'm, is I'm looking at I'm looking at Santana's three seasons two two thousand four through two excuse me two thousand six four twenty and six two six one ERA led the league in strikeouts led the league in FIP and WHIP uh, Cy Young. 2005, 16 and 7, 287 ERA, uh, led the league in strikeouts, led the league in FIP and whips. And then in 2006, led the league with 19 wins, went 19 and 6 with a 277 ERA. It was the second time he led the league in ERA. Uh, led the league for the third consecutive year in strikeouts and for the third consecutive season in FIP and whip. And then you would fast forward to uh, his rather good season in 2008 with the Mets. He led in ERA, and he's pitched. Uh, and that's it. That's the extent uh, of his greatness, those three years. And, I, A, I wouldn't put them in the same class as Sandy Koufax. I mean, like, this is, and, and, B, this is I'm still a little miffed why they waived the rules is, on Sandy Koufax, as great as he was. This is definitely my... Um... Uh, you know, just my emotions talking here, but basically up to, I guess, really, I guess the no at the no hitter, I think he had a 238 ERA. So those two months as a Met in 2012, and, and he didn't completely fall off until he hurt his ankle or his or his Achilles heel, I think even uh, against the Cubs uh, trying to cover first base, but. It's unbelievable that if that really was all we saw, the last greatness of greatness that we saw of Johan Santana, I mean, thank you. Because he left it all on the table in 2012 in the first two months of the season and gave us and gave me personally the greatest baseball moment I had ever witnessed, you know, in in there and I've been to World Series games before, so thank you, Johan Santana. And I know that one day, unless Jeff Wilpon and Fred Wilpon don't can get it, <laughs> uh, Johan Santana will be in the Mets Hall of Fame, and I, I think I, I would definitely advocate for that. Uh, let's finish with that, uh, and then we can move on to the other Hall of Fame talk. Uh, Rich, yeah, you know. They have to get off the dime and start doing more of this. So they have been decent about the Mets Hall of Fame 
Um, you know, you have guys in there like Franco and Seaver, you know, and, and the usual suspects. But so they have been decent about that. I know we talk about statues all the time, but I hope they do the right thing by Johan because his Mets career, as you look at it, forty six and thirty four, which certainly is not stellar. You know, it doesn't nearly match his Minnesota career of ninety three and forty four, which is insane. So you know, but his Mets career was fairly pedestrian. You know, 46 and 34, um, an ERA as a Met of 3.18, which is very good. But, you know, certainly not that that few years of dominance, like Mike was talking about, you guys were both talking about, between 2004 and 2007. So does he belong in the Mets Hall of Fame? For obvious reasons, yes. You know, only one to throw a no-hitter and certainly had some solid years. I hope they do the right thing by him. But, you know, just I'll leave you with this thought on Johan Santana. Can you guys believe it's been six years since she was on the mound? My God, that yeah. went fast. Wow, yeah. And and I have to say that I bet you his Mets career ERA got ballooned because of those those last six weeks. I mean, he didn't finish up till August, and he was awful for a good stretch down, like, you know, basically six weeks that made his ERA, I think, a five. He used to something ERA for 2012, which – you know, was just devastating. Now, do you think in in, in the course of his no hitter, he knew my career is over. I'm 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 leaving it all out here on this mountain. My arm will never be the same. I don't. Think I don't so. know because it really hasn't been. I mean, he, he's had shoulder issues, of course, but he had shoulder issues before that, and it's been mainly leg stuff. Okay. Yeah, you know, I think in Santana's case, Mike, you know, a lot of athletes say that they never know when it's over, like because of because who they are, they're athletes, they're trained to compete, their body is their tool, that they're just not capable of processing for the most part, unless they're 45, you know, whatever, but they're they're not usually capable of processing, okay, this is the end for me, because they believe they can keep going. Um, it's just who they are. It, it's their competitors. They have great bodies, stuff like that. So my guess would be that he he probably felt that he had another five years in him. I could be wrong, but that that would be my guess. I, I admire the guy most for his accountability. You know, I think he was no, a throwback. He, um... he was old school. Uh, he was very responsible, uh, and accountability was a big thing for him. I admire him most for that. He was recently on uh, MLB network talking about the no-hitter and, and probably talking about a bunch of other stuff, but I only saw the clip on, on the Mets uh, website. And um, it says, I mean, you know, somewhere out there I think it, it says that he said he's still trying to make a comeback. And I guess people were trying to talk to him because of his Hall of Fame status and the fact that he was either going to get voted on or off or, or at least make the 5%, you know, which he did not. But, um, yeah, so, you know, uh, I, I, a power to Johan. I really hope he does it. And uh, whatever team, hopefully it's not the Phillies or the Nationals or the Braves or the Marlins. <laughs> that's all I have to say about uh, that. That's, we'll finish with that. But you know what? I'll, I'll quote uh, Mr. Johan Santana, and I will say, believe it. And uh, the Hall of Fame I have to say, I'd like to start, instead of with the people who got voted in, I'd like to start with Edgar Martinez, because 70% of 
and and with one more year left, sounds like Edgar Martinez. Uh, I'll go to Mike first. Uh, sounds like he's going to get voted in as the DH next year. He's trending that way. History says, you know, once you break 70, you're bound to get in. Uh, yeah, it, unfortunately, he was a DH. He was a very good third baseman uh, early in his career. Injury limited limited his, his field appearances until he ultimately devoted full-time to DH. Uh, one of the greatest hitters in my lifetime. Uh, unfortunately, being a DH is, is a strike against you, and I, I kind of feel the same way. It's a hybrid, just like relief pitches are. Nobody knows what to make make of them yet. Uh, should you be elected solely on the basis of your hitting? Well, uh, I guess you can make that argument for some that are already in. Uh, I would like to see him get in. I really would. But, you know, you have twice, maybe three times as many voters today as there were when I was a kid. And uh, that just expands the 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 conversation, the debates, and the opinions. Uh, so it, it's harder than ever to get into the whole thing now, I think, uh, because there's so many voters. But uh, he definitely should be in. I've I, I seen what he did. I've I seen him affect games and, and carry teams. Uh, unfortunately, the Mariners never won. Uh, but that shouldn't be held against him. Uh, but DH is, is a tough call. It really is. And I'm interested to see what they're going to do with Poppy because if Poppy gets in, well, I believe Edgar should get in. Uh, and outside of that, uh, by, you know, good luck to him. That's that's all I can say. It, it's, it's tough. Tough call. Rich, you know, doing the eye test, you saw Edgar Martinez play. Is he a Hall of Famer? Yes. Um, Edgar Martinez, you know, th- this is going back. You know, he, Most of his career was before the days of having the MLB package and watching every game. So you would only see the Mariners, and they would play the Yankees, or, uh, you know, in my case, I get the Red Sox as well, and um, or on a game of the week or something like that. But when I would watch this guy, he had power to right field, right center field. He was just a pure hitter. He could pull the ball. He could hit the ball to all fields with power. It was kind of like watching Piazza, maybe not the same raw power, but the same kind of hitter. And just an amazing hitter. And believe me, I cannot stand the designated hitter rule. I think it's a disgrace to baseball. And every time I hear that, you know it's going to happen before there's a much better chance that it comes to the National League before it goes away. With that said, you can't deny this guy the Hall of Fame because he was a DH for the following reason. How much do the Hall of Fame people value defense anyway? Keith Hernandez, if you did, Keith Hernandez would be in the Hall of Fame. Keith Hernandez. Oh, would have been in today. Right, right. All these guys. And let's, and let's you know what, let's, let's, why don't we digress, uh, digress a bit? Why is Omar Vizquel not a Hall of Famer? Right, the guy is more gold than, than Fort Knox, right? And but the thing is, the bit, it's just not it's not a thing. Like Omar Vizquel was not a great offensive player, just an off the chart defensive player. But look at a guy like Hernandez. Hernandez was an above average offensive player, probably not Hall of Fame offensive player. But if you add in the defense, and you're telling me that that does not tip the scale for this guy to go in the Hall of Fame, what you're telling me is 
defense is not really a consideration for the Hall of Fame. Okay, then how can you not put a DH in there? I've got his statistics in front of me. The guy's a career 312 hitter with 309 home runs. Are you kidding me? A, 300 and, a, a 312 hitter over almost 20 seasons? This guy's a machine. How is he not in the Hall of Fame? And it's right there. I mean, and this is where it's just you, you hope that as they try to figure out how they tackle this new way of thinking – which I think, you know, if you really, not only just in terms of the optics that you just presented, Rich, but get, just getting past this whole 3,500 number and just thinking of Hall of Famers as, well, how do they perform at the stat? Because so, I've heard so many people argue what you just argued about Keith Hernandez, and the guy should be in the Hall of Fame. And unfortunately, his career ended early, but like, Especially, like, if you're looking at some of his, like, people like Kirby Puckett, who came, uh, who uh, had similar numbers in 12 seasons, uh, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame, too. And you just you just can't box it in anymore. That's basically what I, I think about this. And that's, and that's why I was happy that Vladimir Guerrero got in. And I'll go to you next, Mike, with, with that one, because he didn't have those, uh, I don't believe he had even 3,000 hits, and I know he didn't have 500 homers. Uh, still one of the premier sluggers of his era, uh, and and that's what you got to look at. you got to look at dominance over a, a period of time, and that's what he did. Uh, yeah, some of those numbers, they're no longer magical as they once were. I'll give you that. Uh, but, uh, you know... Vlad did it the old-fashioned way. He just did it every year. Uh, and, no, his name never came up in those conversations about PEDs and whatnot. Uh, I think he's a legitimate Hall of Famer. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm the type, I'm looking to remove people from the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I, I, I don't have these uh, uh, loose standards uh, that would uh, allow some of these guys to get in. Uh, unfortunately, some numbers are unavoidable. Like, I, I don't want to jump the gun. Well, I don't want to jump the gun, but like uh, Trevor Hoffman, I mean, I, I just don't see it. I, 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 I look back on his career and the guy was just a complete failure. <laughs> he, he blew every big game he ever pitched in. He couldn't you know, get Piazza out. He, he was an accumulator, and I don't have anything against accumulators. Uh, there's a legitimate argument to be made for accumulators. So I'm not going to take his Hall of Fame status away from him, uh, but we were talking about Vladimir. I think he's well-deserving of his entrance into the Hall of Fame. Well, you look at his numbers. He was a 318. Uh, he had a 318 batting average. He added 660 basically 60 wins according to war over the course of his career. And uh, he had 449 uh, home runs, 1,496 RBIs. He stole 181 bases. He had a 379 on base percentage, and he slugged at a 553 clip. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's only 42 years old. 
the reason he has those numbers is because he just fell apart like normal people would and he didn't do steroids. <laughs> but it's not necessarily the cumulative stats. Uh, again, as you alluded to, that the magic numbers, they've somehow lost their re- re- relevance over the last 20, 25 years. I go for the impact. What kind of impact did he make? And between 1998 and, and 2007, we're talking a block of years that he failed to drive in 100 runs only once. That's what I mean by dominance over a period of time. So you can add up the numbers and, and let them fall where they may, but for 10 years, this guy was one of the premier sluggers of the game. That's how I judge a Hall of Famer. You know, uh, you look you look at a guy like uh, Jim Rice, who it took him so long to get into the Hall of Fame. Well, because his numbers didn't come close to the magic numbers per se. But if you look at his career, if you look at the block of time that he played, he was the one of the elite sluggers of his time for 10 years. That's a Hall of Famer. What you do in your other 10 years of a, you know, hopefully healthy 20-year career, that's just putting, you know, that's just icing on the cake. But when you dominate for 10 years, to me that's a Hall of Famer. And if you only have an 11-year career, you're a Hall of Famer in my eyes. But you've got to dominate. You can't fall in the middle of the pack. Those people are reserved for the Hall of Very, Very Good. This is the Hall of Fame. This is the top of the top of the top. Again, one out of every 100 players. And I think Vladimir Guerrero fits in that category. One, let me see, one, two, three, four, five consecutive years of 100 RBIs. Then he hit, then he drove in 79 in 2003, and then one, two, three, four, another four years consecutively of another uh, of 100 RBIs, and then laid it down his career one more for good luck, just like Dave Winfield. You know, he did it from beginning to end, and, and to me, that's a Hall of Famer. Rich? I don't disagree. You know, you look at this guy. I mean, first of all, he killed the Mets, killed the Mets. And, you know, he was a ferocious player on the field. There was nothing he couldn't do. You know, we all, we've all seen video of the throws he would make from the right field corner to third base on the fly. He could, you know, 449 career home runs and a 318 lifetime hitter. And, you know, throwing a few stolen bases to boot, like like you were saying. So over a 16-year period, yeah, that's pretty close to a dominating player as far as I'm concerned. I mean, a guy who, if you look at his 162-game average, this guy was going to give you 34 home runs and bat 318 over the course of a season. And you'll take that every time, and you know, and twice on Sunday. And he's also going to drive in 113 runs and give you incredible defense in the outfield. Yeah, that's a Hall of Famer. And like you were saying earlier about Johan, Vladimir had a couple of bad years, or quote-unquote bad years, at the end of his career. He finished his career as an Oriole, and that year, although he hit 290, he only hit 13 home runs, which takes down his average home runs. But um, and then you know, two years prior to that, in 2009, he only had 15 home runs. So as he, as he got a little bit older, his production went down. If that did not happen, his numbers would be off the charts. I mean, you know, you have a guy with a 16-year career putting up those kind of numbers. What fan of any team wouldn't take 34 home runs, 
um, you know, 34 home runs, 113 RBIs, and a 318 average. I'd take that at any position on the field, as anybody would. So, yeah, this guy belongs in the Hall of Fame. And it uh, segues, like, considering that there's two uh, National League East folk in this one. It's, uh, we segue to the elephant in the room, Larry. Uh, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. And, and, and still, it's a love-hate relationship because you've got to, you know, I just love the fact that he loved Shay so much that he called his kid Shay. And he also seems to, to appreciate the Mets in his, uh, you know, in, in his uh, retirement just uh, from, from uh, being just a seeing eye. So, yeah, I, I, you know, he kills the Mets, but it's just one of those love-hate relationships. He's a Hall of Famer. I mean, and Larry's one of those guys that, you know, that when he retires, you really admire him. Of course, you know, you don't like him during when he's killing your team on a regular basis. But but after he retires, you really pull back and you say, it's one hell of a baseball player. I mean, that guy was amazing. And the one thing I always find most interesting, I think we all know this, is that while we think he killed the Mets and he did, he actually had better career statistics against the Phillies. Uh, more home runs, I believe a higher batting average as well. But although, you know, we don't care what he did to the Phillies. What we care about is what he did to the Mets, and, and he was just a poison. After you, Mike. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. One of the greatest. I appreciate, I appreciate your your uh, your host uh, etiquette. Yeah, man, you're the host. I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here. Uh, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, without a doubt. For you know, uh, eight or the first eight or nine, ten years of his career, premier third baseman in baseball. Not the premier, but one of the premier third basemen in baseball. Uh, and then the second half of his career, once he hit 32 and beyond, uh, he was still amongst the elite, you know, and he aged gracefully. Uh, and his career is is, is very, uh, how should I say, natural looking. <laughs> uh, and then you look at third base. Uh, the position of third base has the least amount of Hall of Famers. You know, so it's a credit to him, Uh Guys like this are far and few between. Uh, and, and, again, great. And, you know, and I saw Mike Schmidt and, and a couple of others. And, you know, I always thought Ron Santo, who finally got in, uh, should have been in. Uh, so welcome to the club, and congratulations to Tripper Jones. Just a great third baseman. I never had any animosity towards him as a Met fan. Uh, it's a team thing. You know, I hate, if, any, if I hated anyone on, on those Braves teams, uh, maybe Brian Jones and, and perhaps Terry Pendleton for a day. How about Greg Maddox? Yeah, yeah, I guess. But you know what? His playoff failures were were very gratifying. So that's kind of a wash. You're right about that. <laughs> well, well, listen. I I I would rather give uh, the number two more time than Trevor Hoffman, but I'll segue over for you, Rich, uh, about Trevor Hoffman. Well, you know, Trevor Hoffman's a guy who had a very long career. You know, like like Mike was saying, and 
and unlike the other people we've been talking about, Trevor Hoffman did not seem to do well against the Mets, and I think that may um, color our opinion a little bit. You know, he, he never was able to get – Piazza was his nemesis. And, um, you know, but but if you look at it, he averaged 39 saves a year. Um, it's pretty good. You know, over an 18-year career, it's pretty good to average 39 saves. I think most teams would take that. Um, I just I'm looking for his blown save. I don't see that number here, but um, he probably blew his his fair share, like they all do. Um, but when you look at it, you know, you can't go by ERA or anything like that with a, with a closer. But if this guy's consistently giving you just about 40 saves a year over 18 years, and you put him in the class of relief pitchers. There aren't many who do that. Um, obviously not everybody's Mariano, so not everybody does that. And again, you, you might get a, a Benitez who would, you know, save 40 plus for a year or two, but not consistently. And I, I appreciate what Hoffman did. So I, I would say, yeah, I, I think he belongs. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of uh, apathetic about it, honestly, when it comes, when it comes to even considering it, you know, like, I, I think that the fact is he has over 600 saves, and there's, I think, only two people that have done that. And uh, like you said, you know, he, he's dependable for 40, 40 uh, saves each year, uh, and but he doesn't seem to – he hadn't seemed to do it properly in the postseason, of course. But one of those, you know, times was against the 98 Yankees, so I think I'll end it there. Uh, let's let's – Let's uh, I'm going to be kind. I'll be kind and say he definitely does deserve to be in the Hall of Fame because I'll give him credit insofar as being a San Diego Padre for 16 years. Uh, it's rare that you see that. He's been available for all those years. There's something to say for staying healthy and longevity. Longevity is a criteria. Uh, and, that yeah, he was indeed a saves leader, uh, a consistent save leader, for a very long time, uh, and he's one of those accumulators. So, in that respect, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. I'll give that to him. But I, I love, won't argue. I, but I, I love, I love that you still like, you know, he's he's one of those accumulators. You know, but he is. <laughs> he is an accumulator. But I, you know, there's some, there's still an, a very good argument to be made for accumulators. Uh, so right. that's that's one way of getting into the Hall of Fame. I don't dispute that. You know, and again, I'll give him longevity, I'll give him health, and I'll give him, uh, you know, because the shelf life of relief pitches is very short. The fact that he lasted 18 years, uh, that speaks uh, a lot, you know. And the fact yeah. that he did it so long for one team, I like that. So I'll give that to him. Well, he did it for Milwaukee, too. Yeah, but he was a Padre for 16 years. When you look back at his career, you think Padres. No, of course, no, of course, of course. I mean, just when you said the one year thing, but anyway, uh, the, I mean, uh, anyway, you know what I meant. But uh, listen, guys, we've talked about so many negative things at, at many points on this podcast. So I'd like to move on to uh, to something called the 2002 New York Mets, and uh, it, it's episode number two, and so we have to talk about 2002. Uh, and I want to do that before the uniform numbers because I think this is a very 
interesting, terrible team. Because they were 75 and 86, meaning they had a bunch of opportunities to swing it, obviously. And, and Rich, when I look at the 2002 uh, New York Mets, I, I see a lot of red, meaning a lot of losing when it comes to the baseball reference page. But you see these stretches where had they just – and you see really, like, you know, small, tiny losses where they just didn't score all the runs. And a lot of the wins, a lot of their wins were blowouts, and they didn't have many wins. But a lot of them, they won by sizable margins, it looks like. There were, there were a few pretty sizable margin ones, and clearly they just didn't have what it took <laughs> probably when, you know, without looking at the schedule when facing good teams. Yeah, you know, the 2002 team, it has to go down. <laughs> you, said, you said a million words right there with the desperation. <sighs> exactly, because, you know, say, saying the Mets, this was the most disappointing season in Mets history is, is almost like, huh, how can you pick one, right? Um, but it has to be among them, because think about it. 2000, they go to the World Series, right? Okay. 2001 doesn't start off well, but they make this spirited comeback in September. Of course, we all know what happened in in, in September of 2001, but they played incredible baseball down the stretch. They were alive for a playoff spot with a week to go, didn't make it. Okay. 2002, you have Robbie Alomar on the team. They picked up one of the best players in baseball, Robbie Alomar. And you know, and and great. You know that, and they got move on, move on, get the ball, you know, to the moon and back. Great. So you know they're going in there. They were apparently loaded and loaded for bear and ready to go, and they absolutely shit the bed. And and it was it was awful. You know, it was just an awful awful season. It's right up there with 1992, where again they had picked up Saberhagen, and you know everything was was pointing upward and. The, the level of disappointment versus expectation was incredible, just like in 2002. So, yeah, I mean, in that season, everything everything just fell apart. You know, nothing worked the way it was supposed to. Um, Robbie Alomar forgot how to play baseball. It's not all on him, but, you know, he, he was a big part of it. And, um, yeah, nothing went right. And it was just, you know, Mike was saying earlier, it was a year where they, they opened the purse strings, they paid some money try to compete. They brought in a Hall of Famer and Robbie Alomar, and it just didn't work. What are you going to say? You know, uh, I don't know. What are your pers- what are your perspectives on it? Well, when I when I uh, before I move it on to you, Mike, uh, I see this. I look uh, besides the players you mentioned and Mike Piazza. Uh, you have Ordonez, who I mean, batted two fifty four, which is pretty solid when you think about Ray Ordonez in offense. Uh, got his one home run in and 42 RBI. I mean, could you ask for anything more than that from from your basically your uh, your uh, what's his name Santana? I forgot Rafael Santana. That's basically what you want out of your shortstop uh, in many ways. But and but you also have like you think about Roger Cedeno, Timo Perez, Jay Payton. You have some young talent. Even Ty Wigginton there, who batted 302 in in a small amount of time at age 24. But you. You do have some promise here, and like you said, it all just fell apart. Mike? <laughs> it fell apart, all right. Uh, move on. Uh, PDS, Performance Detracting Food. What happened to that dude? Uh, 2002, you know what? I'll take it from the top. 
after a long, contentious court battle, Doubleday and Wilpon finally agreed on a price. And, and by December, Nelson Doubleday was out the door. But before he left, he left us with the prophecy. Fred Wilpon, and I quote, will run this team into the ground. And then with regard to Jeff Wilpon, he was in his box one day during doing this interview, uh, again, either for the New Yorker or the New York Times is where I read this. And he said, quote, look at him standing there like little Pharaoh. He thinks he's going to become a baseball man. It's laughable, unquote. Paraphrasing. That's probably the safest bet to do. Uh, so, you know, there's that. Then there's Steve Phillips. His days as a Met GM are over. Fired. Bobby Valentine, likewise, fired. You know, and this is all 2002 heading into the offseason. Uh, so uh, <laughs> how much more worse could could it have gotten? Steve, Steve Phillips left Fred Wilpon with the highest payroll in the National League and the last place ball club. Uh, so that, you know, that's just the reverse of us complaining about all our money matters today. Uh, so it's ponderous season. Uh, you know, Alomar comes here, forgets how to play baseball. Uh, Mo Vaughn, uh, you're right about Ordonez. Uh, Edgardo Alfonso was 28. And uh, unfortunately, uh, better seasons for the Mets were behind him. Uh, wacky season. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, coming off of 2000, uh, we saw the future. It didn't look too bright, especially with everything going on in the background. So I was just dreading 2003. Uh, but. December of 2002 marks the day that the Wilpons slash Soul Cats took over soul control of the Mets. And that's what 2002 means to me. And, uh, yeah, the cycle continues. Mike? That was me. Mike, (laughs) you watched my movie. You watched my movie today. I did. And I think that I hit on some of everything that we're talking about. Yeah. But uh, with that, we're in a, you know, with a little shameless plug right there of the newest breed film coming out. uh, We're going to segue over to uniform number two. And uh, without me starting like I sometimes do with reading the list off, I'm just going to pass it on and and start with Rich. Because obviously I, I, I think... If you want to start at the top, I think you kind of do have to start at the top, even though there's a lot of number twos. Well, you know, as I look at it, you know, I think sometimes we all look at different lists. I think I'm seeing 29 players who wore the number. And, um, you know, so looking at this, it's interesting to figure out which ones, you know, stand out. And and what I like to do when we we do this – the, the the uniform numbers. I like to talk about somebody who meant something to me, like maybe somebody who was a little bit more, a uh, 
a little bit more remote, you know. So, so I'm going to go with Mackie Sasser to start with. And if if you're a Met fan, you think of one thing. You think of Mackie Sasser. You think of a guy who could not throw the ball back to the pitcher. Um, it, it's the most bizarre thing ever. But he used to pump his, his hand into his glove three or four times and then, like, throw a lollipop back to the pitcher. He had a mental block against doing that. Now, if somebody was stealing on him, he could – get, you know, pop out of the box and, and throw with no problem. There was no issue. But just throwing the ball back to the pitcher, it was maddening to watch, and this guy just had a mental block against it. So how can you forget about Mackie Sasser? Um, moving on, you know, to other people who have worn the number, uh, Jim Fergosi, I'll mention him because for a couple reasons. Number one, you know, traded for Nolan Ryan, which at the time, I know I've said this on this podcast many times, Trading Nolan Ryan made sense in in context because he had been around for about five years and he just could not get the ball over the plate. So the Mets traded him for a veteran who had you know veteran All Star you know previous All Star made some sense, but Fergosi was terrible. He lasted a season and a half with the Mets. And one of my best memories ever was I was in San Diego in 2009 for a Mets series and I sat next to Jim Fergosi for the whole game. He was a scout for the Braves. And he, it wasn't like I was, you know, trying to talk to him and he was trying to get away from me. He was engaging in the conversation. So for nine innings, I talked to this guy who had been an all-star, played for the Mets, was now scouting for the Braves. Like he was my buddy and I was sitting on the couch with him. It was one of the most amazing experiences ever. So, um, so that's for Gosey. Who else can I talk about here? Um, Dilson Herrera. You know, in the more current age, um, a guy that was second base in the future until he wasn't when he was traded for Jay Bruce. So, um, and I still think he'll be something with the Reds at some point. He's had some injury concerns. And I'll wrap it up by, uh, who else can I mention on this list? Uh, Leave a couple for you guys. I'm not going to go with the obvious. Damon Buford um, was one of the guys the Mets got back for Bobby Bonilla when they traded him. They got Buford and... um, he was an incredibly fast runner. He was a, a very strong, uh, very good athlete, uh, outfielder, sort of a light-hitting, great defensive, incredibly fast outfielder whom I really liked because I liked that kind of player. Um, he went on from the Mets, you know, had a few, you know, few seasons in the major leagues and kind of fizzled. So I'll leave it at that and leave some for you guys. Uh, Mike, before I pass it on to you, and, and there's obviously plenty of other uh, others, including a, uh, a World Series winner. Um, I believe, yes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, looking at the date. But uh, when when I'm thinking about what we were talking about at the beginning about Jeff and Fred and how we want them to sell the team, I just look at this and I say, you know what? If I own the team, I think I would retire Marv Throneberry's number two. That would sit, that would sit well with Met fans. Uh, he's he's a cult hero. There's precedence there. Uh, I think it would fly, you know. Uh, but but it couldn't come anywhere close to the majesty what they need to do of the majesty they need to do for Joe Pace nor for any other legitimate statue worthy player so it would have to be within context how's that 
Yeah, I, I would. Well, I think if I and you and I mean, maybe we need to make this a goal is for the A Messian podcast people to one day own the Mets. But if we if we owned uh, the New York Mets, I think all of this would be taken care of because we would get it. And I mean, we'd obviously have to also. Uh, I, I think that would be something very another, cool. The whole business savvy part and also making sure that people are, are put in the right position is a whole other conversation. But that's, <laughs> uh, that's for a later day. Uh, but, but just I, for, for I us from a theoretical about- no, I'm I'm talking about Marvin for number two, though. Uh, he would be fun. He would be fun at ground level, life size. This way, everyone could walk up to it, take their picture, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And the other ones should he, be no, a lot be, more. He could be, he could be child life size. The children can take their pictures with it. And, exactly. And exactly. You have, uh, you know, also but, representing uh, the fact that it wasn't that good. <laughs> but uh, there's a good one for number two. Let me see. Uh, Three cheers for for Roy Steger, a uh, favorite of mine, one of my favorites in 76. Uh, anybody on that team is a favorite of mine. So three cheers for him. Uh, I'll leave the uh, world champion up for, for, for you, Sam. Uh, Gavin Ciccini, you know, you had a guy in your video, a uh, little plug here, and he nailed it because Gavin Ciccini is going to turn out to be Another one of these Met prospects will never get a chance. Yeah. Because they're too busy, you know, just patching it together. Uh, well, I, I think I gotta I gotta leave the I gotta leave the world champion Kevin Elster to to um uh, to Rich and you. Uh, obviously, I know we. I think a lot of us know your story, although I don't think you've ever told it on a Messing podcast. So, uh, when it comes to Kevin Elster, I mean, if you guys want right. to take take it away. We'll all kumbaya on him. Uh, Dilson Herrera, you know, I wish he was still a Met. That's how I feel about Jay Bruce, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I wasn't willing to pay that price. So, that being said, Jose Kendo is another shortstop on this list. Uh, great glove, man. Great glove. Uh, went on to be a, a coach for St. Louis and a very well-respected one at that. And uh, who else is on this list that I might throw uh, cheers out for? You know, Justin Turner, well, we, well, one that got, got away. Bobby. Uh, Bobby. What? Bobby Valentine. We got Bobby Valentine. Is he on that list? Eh, you know, what's he famous for? Blowing bubblegum? Blowing bubbles? Eh. <laughs> well, uh, Rich, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, what I, if you, if I want to talk about Bobby Valentine, Bobby Valentine was one of my favorite parts of Mets lore, and, and just in terms of, of at the time, I was on the opposite side. And so it is an era that I look back on with fond memories just because even as a Yankee fan, I rooted for baseball in New York. And especially I remember watching the, uh, uh, the Robin Ventura rain game, the Grand Slam single. I remember watching that in my uh, – my living room in Hell's Kitchen, and uh, Bobby Valentine's just a fun character in the history of the Mets. Even even if uh, it sounds like Mike's got some gripes with him. <laughs> As a player, he was nothing to me because he got traded for Dave Kingman. As a manager, I, right. I had no, nothing but respect for him. But his number his number is on here as a manager. Yeah, well, but yeah. 
His, the, 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 he wore it in 1985 from four, uh, from April of 1985 till May, and then he wore it as a manager the whole time. Hey, Richard, uh, what do you what do you got about uh, Valentine and Elster? Elster. Um, well, you know, Kevin Elster came up. He was going to be the next shortstop, right? He was going to be the next shortstop for 15 years. Great glove, and he was, you know, he was sort of like a, I'm trying to come up with an analog, bigger guy, you know, taller guy, had a little bit of power, and came up with the reputation of impeccable defense. So, Mike, I know you were in Germany at the time, and it's going to drive me crazy. Elster made an error in one of the World Series games when he came in as a defensive replacement. And he came in late in the game. might not have been a defensive replacement, but he came in. They had maybe taken Santana out or something like that. And, um, and he kicked the ball. I think it might have been game six. Uh, it was at Shea. Maybe it was, uh, it was one of the games. He kicked the ball that, and it was like, my God, you know, this young rookie, he comes up and, and you would think the glove would be there. Yes, maybe he has to learn how to hit on the big league level. But he made an error, and, and damn, that's going to drive me crazy. I think, I think it might have been game six um, in the middle of the game, like maybe the seventh, eighth inning. And, um, but anyway, so Elster, you know, Never lived up to the potential. You know, he was a guy who was really hyped. You know, this guy's the guy. He's going to be, you know, 15 years at shortstop and, and never really hit that potential. Had a couple of decent years. Had a decent 88, I believe. A um, couple of decent years as a Met in the late 80s, but wasn't what they expected and hoped him to be. I'll leave it with this in terms of number two, uh, Juan Uribe. Uh, he kind of, you know, we're talking a lot uh, about some players who didn't live up to potential, and not that Juan Rebate didn't live up to potential. I think he was very happy with his role on many, many teams. Uh, but unfortunately, he got injured that year, and he wasn't really able to. The, the charge that we, we had, kind of in a, a way, even though we, we emotionally power through that Dodger series and then, you know, really uh, uh, power through that Cubs series. But it all kind of fell apart and with that World Series. And, and you know, Juan Uribe and number two almost represents that bittersweetness and of, of what Marv Throneberry almost represents, which is just that fun-loving, you know, unfortunately not, you know, is not going to get you that many wins, but at least he's going to entertain you. <laughs> and, and that's uh, that's kind of what sometimes the Mets represent. And uh, with that, I'll I'll segue to the last word, and, and I'll start with you, Rich. The last word is um, anxious. Um, I'm anxious for the Mets to do something else. I don't uh, something. I mean, yeah, the Bruce thing felt good for a week or two. It's been two weeks today, I believe, um, that they that they signed him. But I'm anxious for them to start doing something else. Um, whether it's picking up Josh Harrison, whether it's Eduardo Nunez, whether it's, you know, any kind of a move, signing a, a starter like a Lance Lynn. Um, I guess it's the calendar. You know, we're in late January now, pitchers and catchers, and I believe 22 days-ish. And um, I, I want to see the roster come together a little bit more, and I'm getting very anxious for that to happen. So that's my last word. How about you, Mike? Last word. Uh, first time. You know, I, once upon a time I gave Jeff Wilpon credit. Remember when he went to Atlanta a bunch of years ago? 
and uh, the media swarmed around him. He's like, look, guys, I'm not here to fire anyone. Beat it. I I thought that was pretty good on his part. And and then Omar Gate, Omar Fiasco, and that whole Bernizard, uh meltdown happened, and, and, and Jeff had to intercede in that. Uh, I thought he handled that pretty well as well. Uh, but afterward, he said yesterday, uh, I'm just like, you know what, I... Any any credibility you had, uh, you you just uh, diminished it by uh, a substantial amount. Uh, I, I'm not pleased for for what he said yesterday. Say nothing at all, and and you haven't heard that from me in a long time. I haven't started out a January quite like this uh, with with this taste in my mouth, and I don't like it. For that, I, I would prefer. Like I said, to have heard nothing, uh, because in effect that's what he said was nothing. So let's leave that as my last word: nothing. Well, I'm going to go with this because you know we've been all over this place for basically the entire time we've been on the podcast since 2013. But but without really going down that, I'm going to go back for my last word to Mackie Sasser. And when you brought up Mackie Sasser, Rich, it made me think of, it was one of my favorite cards to come across. The Mackie Sasser card. And I couldn't tell you whether it was a tops or an upper deck and what year it was. But when I saw that name, Mackie Sasser, I loved that baseball name and I loved that it was a Mets card and uh, that's what I remember about Mackie Sasser, so I appreciate it. And I think, and one of you can maybe have this information, but I, I, somebody on the team had Mackie Sasser as a coach, I believe. Mm. Mm. I don't recall. I don't either. Well, it could I'll, be true, I'll, though. We'll have to look that up. We'll have to look that up for episode three, so stay tuned. And without further ado, thank you very much for listening to our sophomore episode of the Metzian Podcast. And, uh, Rich, uh, I appreciate it, as always. Thank you for joining us. Sam, thanks for taking the lead, and uh, thanks for sharing the link to your film. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, definitely, and I can't wait to share it with everybody else. And, and Mike, and I appreciate the kind words today. And, uh, of course, as always, thank you. we, we got to get both of you uh, back on the hosting uh, around at some point. Yeah, no problem with that. I did watch it, loved it. And, uh, you know, can't wait for the finished product. All right. Well, thanks, guys. And uh, without further ado, as always, the only thing to end with is let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.